0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live uh, is a novelist, and memoirist. One of his many books includes City Boy, My Life in New York during the 60s and 70s. His new novel is called Jack Holmes and his friend. Will you please welcome Edmund White to West Coast Live? <laughs> How do you do? Hi, thank you. Thank, thank you. Great to see you. To see you oh, boy, I mean, talk about uh, going back in history. Uh, I mean, this must have been a fun book for you to recollect and to write, I would think, remembering sort of the, the heyday, the pre AIDS time of New York City.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, I think Susan Sontag once said that there was only about a 20-year period in human history when people could do what they wanted to do. It was between the invention of the birth control pill and the uh, uh, the, uh, invention of antibiotics and the advent of AIDS. So there's about 20 years there where people could play around as much as they wanted
0: with very few consequences. I mean, if you take a look at the time of the Marquis de Sade, of course, I mean, there were consequences. That, that's right. Nasty consequences. <laughs> uh, but this this also is a story. Uh, the the new book is a story of uh, the the friendship between uh, Jack, who is a, a, a gay man, becomes aware of his of his homosexuality, and Will, uh, a man who is straight and is kind of oblivious to a lot of the uh, the emotions in the world, including Jack's attentions and. And it's also structured in an interesting way. Part of the book is told from Jack's point of view and uh, the second half from Will's point of view. Yes, I,
1: I um, told uh, things from Jack's point of view in the first half, but third person, because I wanted Jack to remain sort of mysterious. For instance, I don't tell anything about his childhood. And I don't know why, except I thought people would fall in love with Jack if he was mysterious. <laughs> and a number of people have told me, men and women, that they've sort of fallen in love with Jack. But um, then I thought, well, I'm halfway through this book, and, um, and it's supposed to be about the two men. And so I suddenly switched to the first person from Will's point of view. And I thought that was a challenge for me as a gay writer to write a straight man's point of view. And
0: I, I thought it would
1: reboot the novel,
0: and I think it does. But you've, you've done that before in some of your other writings, r- written from like a straight man's point of view. Yes, uh, I have. I can't even think which one. <laughs> but um, one of the interesting things in the in your acknowledgments is you thank somebody for helping you over an extremely tough spot in the creation of the book, uh, but also um, to sort of a way of telling the book, uh, which is really from a physical point of view.
1: Yeah, I, I was thanking my partner, Michael Carroll, who's here today. And... Uh, I was saying that he taught me a new way to write a novel. I mean, he's a writer, a wonderful writer, and he got me to read Richard Yates' novels, and um, he kept uh, pushing me toward uh, action-packed writing where there would be a scene with dialogue and action and not so much description and not so much meditation on things, which was a departure for me because I had written a highly descriptive style before but now less so. And so people are kind enough to say that this is a page turner and I never wrote anything that could answer to that description before.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, how did people read the
0: books if they couldn't turn the pages? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, they kind of maybe didn't turn the pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting in going back and looking through uh, your, your memoir, uh, City Boy, from earlier on, there were clearly some episodes from your memoir that showed up in in the novel. For instance, in, you, in your life your first novel I think it what do you, what do you say it, it 600 copies were sold 1400 were shredded I mean there's a similar experience that uh, will has in his in his account yes poor will isn't a very good writer and he gets a terrible review in The times
1: which is very discouraging to him um, but that's right my first book was uh, largely ignored uh, but then Nabokov said it was his favorite American <laughs> novel, so that kind of... But it was three years after it had been uh,
0: pulped, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't any copies around. So it became all the rarer, all the... all the. It, but it was interesting, you, you worked uh, with Nabokov uh, kind of as a, a, a magazine editor at one point, and had a very interesting correspondence with him.
1: Yes, I was out here in San Francisco. I lived here in 1972, I think. And um, I was with Saturday Review, which moved the whole magazine out here. And um, uh, we did, uh, Nabokov wrote a, um, uh, a, a, a book called Transparent Things. And so in honor of him, I sent Lord Snowden to take pictures of him in Switzerland. And everybody said, oh, no, no, get a great photographer, not some silly Member of the royal family, and I said, "No, no, Nabokov was a terrible snob, and he'll prefer." And 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 he really liked Lord Snowden, and 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 he spent a week with him, and uh, he would uh, take him butterfly hunting in the hills, and he would dress like Borges with a cape around him and all this stuff. And uh, so there's a lot of clowning photos that uh, that I don't think we would have gotten otherwise.
0: I mean, you must have had a, a good chuckle about that. I mean, look what you set off in the world. That's right. And I got a number of people
1: like Joyce Carol Oates and William Gass to write a a little homages to um, uh, Nabokov. And I wrote one too. And uh, um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, he wrote a piece for us uh, on inspiration and uh, I chose a, a picture by Jérôme, a French academic painter of the 19th century, of um, of Pygmalion. And the, the sculptor is just finishing the sculpture, and the sculpture itself is changing from marble to pink flesh, and uh, uh, it's quite a sexy and, and beautiful
0: uh, painting, if you like kitsch. And, uh, uh, and the book I thought was perfect. <laughs> You had fun running a magazine, but one of the interesting things in, in reading that uh, is, is, is describing how much work it was to turn out a magazine in the pre-computer age. We forget about this and the timelines, the deadlines, the layouts. That's right. And the biggest printer out here in San Francisco, the only really
1: big job they'd ever done was the telephone book, which <laughs> they d- didn't have to uh, be done uh, on a weekly basis. So uh, it it was hard. It was hard even to find journalists out here or or writers. I mean, like I think at that time Herbert Gold was the most famous writer living here, but there weren't that many well known writers.
0: When you uh, when you were doing uh, Jack Holmes and his friend, uh, they meet at a publication in New York called the Northern Review, which probably has resonances from that time and. and and they work, and one of the interesting aspects of, of the characters, uh, certainly uh, both from Jack and Will as you tell their story, is the interior monologue, the insecurities they have in trying to be friends, develop a connection, the, the quandary of wanting to be friends with a straight man when you're gay and finding yourself attracted to them. I mean, there's a lot of nuance about it, particularly at a time when homosexuality was was, was also illegal in New York. Well, yes, I mean, I try to show how people's lives are actually influenced
1: by history and gay people more than anybody else's, perhaps. Because it. Uh, they come to New York in 1962, and at that time, uh, um, Jack is entirely in the closet because if people knew that you were gay, you'd be fired from your job. So, um, and then gradually, slowly, he comes to terms with it himself, but he's going to a shrink, hoping to go straight. And uh, with not much success,
0: the shrink is in a Barker lounger, Please. smoking in a Barker lounger. <laughs> That's right. I had a shrink like that myself, and um,
1: an avocado green Barker lounger. And she'd sort of dip out of sight in this Barker lounger, and then she'd reemerge with a big cigarette in her mouth. Uh, I kind of knew that my hour was up when she when she surfaced, uh, but. Uh, Anyway, and then by the by, by the end of the of the book, I mean Jack has really come to terms with being gay. When I first arrived in New York, very few gay people had partners. Uh, I mean, you, you because nobody wanted to wake up next to this evidence uh, <laughs> that they were actually gay. Uh, another a partner in the same bed. So I mean, there were of course uh, couples, but, but I didn't know any. And uh, then, uh, you know, by the 80s, when the book ends, uh, people were coupled, partly because they were afraid of AIDS, and that was a way of uh, being faithful to one person.
0: Well, that's certainly one of the, one of the choices that uh, both Jack and Will face, uh, you know, toward the end of the book, is how to move forward into the future at the time when suddenly this uh, disease called GRID at the time was a gay-related uh, immunodeficiency. Mu- Im- immunodeficiency, which was also what it was what also known in some circles as the 4-H club. Was it? <laughs> it was. It was. It was homosexual, Haitian heroin user, and hemophiliac. Oh
1: gosh, yeah, that's a pretty grim way of talking about. I that. know, but I mean, that was
0: kind of you know in the eighties. I mean, that's when it was happening. I mean, that was kind of the the shorthand for.
1: it. Yeah, people imagine that that white heterosexuals would never get it, uh, and then by and large they were spared. But uh, but there are lots of cases of, of women who are uh, heterosexual who have gotten it. Yeah. One of the
0: one of the issues that you explore the relationships between uh a, a how a gay relationship is different from a straight relationship and although you're doing it and you have your characters expressing this in the book uh, it must reflect some of your own observations of the world uh, for instance you know after a gay relationship ends they remain friends after a straight relationship ends it's what, what do you say you say it's off with their heads
1: yeah off with their heads and i i talk i ascribe that to bad heterosexual values and <laughs> i, I I, I mean, I, I think like it's so true that after a divorce, most people don't ba- barely speak to their, the person they spent 20 years with, and woke up beside for 20 years, uh, and I think that's such an outrage. Um, and gay people aren't like that. I, I think they're much friendlier with their exes. Do you think gay marriage than gay divorce would change that? No, I don't think so because I think some. I asked a shrink once about this, and he explained to me. He said, "I think the governing metaphor underlying a gay relationship is the best friend. And in real life, you know, if you have a best friend, you wish the best for him, and you, uh, even if it means, that in this case, that he would take up with another partner, if that makes him happy, fine. And I think that uh, gay people are very tolerant that way."
0: You have a you have an interesting uh, woman character in the book, Alexa. Uh, who is who is lovely Jack is initially his friend, but will uh gets involved with her and and how did you imagine Alexa and was she typical of women that you knew in the sixties well i I worked as I say
1: at Time magazine, and uh there were, everybody seemed to be named Alken there at that time, <laughs> and everybody was sort of i mean the 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 men were the writer it was very uh sexist and very rigid. So the men were the writers and the women were the researchers. And the women researchers who were paid a miserably slow, uh, low salary, uh, they, they, were, they were able to accept such a low salary, like many women publishing today, because they were rich. <laughs> and so everybody was a kind of brittle, uh, sophisticated uh, debutante with a fabulous million-dollar education from uh, Barnard or someplace.
0: Uh, there was something also that you capture about the New York of that time, which is the fluidity of being able to move from some place, you know, a, a dark alley in the, in the West Village to a, you know, a, a, a lovely flat somewhere up in uh, the Upper East Side, the, the, the way people could move from one place to another.
1: I mean, New Yorkers have always been famous for moving quickly, for renting. Uh, in the past, they always rented, they didn't buy, and they would change apartments every two years just for the fun of it. And... Um, I think that now that prices are so high and people buy more than they rent, that there's a lot less mobility like that. But um, also people, there was a lot of social mob- mobility. I mean, people would start off with a very low salary and then within a few years, in certain industries like advertising or finance, they could suddenly be millionaires.
0: One of the aspects of the novel, in addition to the the, the physical sexuality that goes on between all the characters and Imagined or wished for, thought or practiced, is also uh, at a core kind of a loneliness. Yeah, I think. I mean,
1: like Jack, for instance, uh, lives alone and uh, and he he doesn't have any sustained relationships. He he's very attractive, so he he can sort of haul them in one trick after another, <laughs> night after night and and it works out very well for him and it, as as a sort of sexual as a libertine he calls himself a libertine but that is a very lonely life i mean a life entirely devoted to pleasure is lonely
0: the uh, you also make a number of wry comments about the writing profession as you go along the novels publishers what's good what isn't uh, poking fun of fitzgerald and uh, and and then you have will the character who's the, sort of the the failed novelist as he's going along in life, constantly imagining idea. You know, gay friend tries to introduce me to a woman to pull me away from my wife. Great idea for a book, I won't write it kind of thing. And then at one point he says, uh, what a terrible thing it is that a married man cannot write a truthful autobiographical novel.
1: I've noticed that. I've noticed that. I mean, I've written these very scandalous memoirs, like City Boy, but also My Lives, especially where I talk about all these really raunchy things I've done in my life. But uh, there's no, there's almost no counterpart like that, except Frank Harris and Casanova.
0: I mean, what about Milan Kundera or or H.G. Wells? (laughs) But in Kundera's case, those are novels, not. um, Not a well. I guess it was autobiographical. Novel was the phrase that Will used. That's why I thought of the novel.
1: Yeah, but uh, I think that it's true that uh, gay people now, their gay people have gotten as stuffy as straight people. And uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I mean now that they're married and, <laughs> and and they have children and and they're respectable citizens, they have to uh, kind of keep up their side. But. Um, <laughs> But in the past, at least, uh, gay
0: people would tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so now you think there's kind of a, a literary closeting going on?
1: Yeah, exa- exactly. Uh,
0: one, one of your books was, a, was kind of, uh, kind of a, instead of a travels with Charlie, it was travels, uh, uh, travels with Edmund, I guess, as you crossed the country, detailing some of your exploits as you went along. I mean, if you were to do that all these many years later, what, what do you think you'd find?
1: Well, that was called States of Desire. And I think that in those days, I was quite presentable looking. I was cute and I was young. (laughs) So I just slept with everybody. And then they would tell me their story and uh, I traveled around. I I don't think I could write it now. I mean, there wouldn't be so many open doors for me except for those boys who like uh, chubby older men. Uh, There are such people. Uh, But um, I don't know. I, I, I think... There's certainly been, uh, I mean, certainly the gay community is more conservative now than it used to be. Uh, I mean, people are getting married, they are adopting children and so on. But I also think there's a lot of hypocrisy in the gay community because people are all cruising online uh, and meeting very privately. And over and over again you see in gay cruising sites the words, you must be
0: discreet. Uh, because uh, I mean, they are married. E- well, that that goes back very much to what you were writing about, set in the '60s. I mean, both for the the straight uh, the straight man and the gay man. too. Yeah, I wonder
1: how things will change if they do find a cure for AIDS. I mean, essentially now we have a wonderful treatment for people with AIDS that allows them to go on living on and on. I mean, I've been positive since 1985, and. I was what was called a slow progressor, which is only 3% of the population, uh, it, it, of the gay population. But, so I never got sicker. But um, by the time my T cells finally began to sink, uh, there were all these wonderful new medicines available. But what if they actually found a cure for AIDS? Would people go back to being promiscuous and drop marriage <laughs> and all that? Or, or would they not? I don't know. Probably both.
0: Because you also depict you know the, the sort of the, the cultural the sexual awakening of the late '60s too going on that uh, where people began to try and reinvent their lives and come out of that, I guess 50s. I mean, in, in a way, part of your book reminded me of uh, a gay version of Mad Men.:
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah it's definitely that world. I mean, there's um, the, the, the Eisenhower years in the '50s. 50s when people were very conservative and then jack comes to new york in 62 when things were beginning to open up but not that much and then gay liberation began in 1969 with the stonewall uprising and even though he's very conservative and ends up as the business editor for newsweek uh nevertheless he uh I think people are affected by history. I mean, like, my father was a very right-wing Republican, but even he started drifting to the left because the whole the whole country was drifting to the left. And, I mean, he accepted a lot of things at the end of his life that he wouldn't have accepted at
0: the beginning. Yeah. And uh, and for you, I mean, looking back in your life, I mean, where have you drifted? Which way have you drifted? <laughs> I think um, maybe I'm more
1: conservative in socially and culturally and, and just as radical politically as ever.
0: What was your reaction when you saw uh,
1: the Stonewall riots going on? I was such a horrible little bourgeois person. I was trying to say, oh, go home, go home, don't don't rebel. You know, uh, uh, the nice policemen, they will help you. And, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I was just impossible. And uh, then, but in spite of myself, I found that uh, it, it touched me deeply because the idea of gays not running off into the night but resisting and staying behind and and fighting with the cops, that seemed to me a, a, a kind of wonderful, liberating, exciting moment. But in spite of myself, it went against all my ideas which were very bourgeois.
0: When you see things such as uh, Arab Spring going on or the Occupy movement, does it bring back any recollections of that time or? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think if I were younger, I, I mean, Joyce
1: Carol Oates, who's a dear friend of mine and who has the office across the hall, she went down to the Occupy movement, so she's eternal. She, even though she's slightly older than I am, uh, she's as young as as you could possibly be. What do you, what do you mean? The office across from you? Where, where where do you have a where do you work? I teach at Princeton. I teach creative writing at Princeton, and she does too, and so does Jeffrey Eugenides, and so does Chang Rae Lee. We have like an all star cast.
0: I its it is an isn't all-star cast. Do you do you get students who are going to be all-stars, do you think?
1: No, we only teach undergrads and uh and and and, and almost uh, they're very clever. They know that they want to make a lot of money, so they they go to to work for Goldman Sachs and none of them wants to be a writer They know how miserably paying it is. They're too smart for that to be writers.
0: So what do you what do you, what are they what are they doing taking your class?
1: Well, uh I think the that the, the some of them are so rigidly scheduled to get a degree in finance or in, in chemistry or whatever, that uh, some high paying job, that uh, it's the one time that they can express themselves. And they really love it. And it's also a pass fail course, so they don't, they're not gonna be given a grade. And, and they like that freedom, which is rare for poor Princeton students who are such overachievers. I mean, they're
0: real workaholics. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that the one of the awakenings that you have will go through is sort of being able to at least uh, have some, eventually have some open conversations with Jack to sort of talk about who he is, whatever that person is. And that seems to me something you learned early on to be able to write about these experiences in your life, which, you know, must be one, ex- one reason, you know, perhaps you, you live long. I hope so. I had a I had a stroke in November, and
1: um, I, I'm just sort of recovering from it. So that was like the the knelling of the of a of a dangerous warning bell. What happened? Well, I I, I woke up from a nap, and uh, I was at a friend's house in Providence, uh, and I couldn't walk or talk. And my speech is still a little slushy, I'm afraid. But um, anyway. Uh, very quickly I recovered my speech, and I sat down and wrote an email while I was still under this spell to, to Michael, my partner, saying, I think I'm having a stroke, and but lots of mistakes in the spelling. Anyway, uh, I, I was uh, sent to the hospital there in Providence, a wonderful hospital called the Miriam Hospital, and got wonderful care there. But just two days, and then Michael took a train up, and I was afraid they were going to let me out, so I just clawed the the, the IV out of my arm, which I guess is the thing men do, but that women don't do. <laughs> um, they wait for the nurse to do it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then I uh, Michael rented a car, and we drove back to. He drove me back to New York, and uh, then we started seeing millions of uh, of doctors and in neurologists in New York.
0: Uh, and so this this time taking you back has been, did, did you find that writing about a time that you'd once written about started pulling out other skeins of memory that you hadn't thought about in a while?
1: Well, yes. Also, the the characters, uh, even though uh, uh, the character of Jack Holmes, I gave him the trajectory of of a number of years in my life. He's not at all like me. I mean, he's not a writer. He's not ambitious. He's very passive, and I think of myself as quite active in live and uh, aggressive and um, um, so it was fun to and he's very good looking and uh, I don't think I myself is good looking, uh, but he, he's very presentable and um, so I think uh, that's uh, it was fun to invent these characters. I mean the, it's not just memory, it's also invention. I mean I spent hours when I was writing this book, I spent hours on the couch just daydreaming my way through it. I would think, oh, this would be fun to do.
0: The book is called Jack Holmes and His Friend by Edmund White, published by Bloomsbury. Thank you very much for being on West Coast. Thank you for having me. Thanks. We'll see you again. Edmund White. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.